It's a privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, If you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, we will be finishing that chapter this morning. And before I read that, as you're turning there, just remind you, if you remember the challenge that I gave last week about intentionally taking the opportunity to please your neighbor for his good, to build them up in the faith, to do something intentionally, spiritually encouraging. If you didn't do that, or if you hadn't taken the time to do that, I would encourage you to do so this week, and to encourage a brother and sister as we are called to do. By the way, that I mentioned a word about our speech last week, uh, pleasing our neighbor as well. That's something that's been personally very convicting. It's made me think twice about what I say uh, to a brother, so I uh, hope you're thinking about that as well. I'm going to read, you can follow along, I'm going to read the first section of our passage, and then the last section, I'm going to skip the middle, I'm going to refer to it uh, during the message, but our focus will be on the beginning and the end of our passage. So starting in verse 14, let me read that for us. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see And those who have never heard will understand. And skipping down to verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we look to you now to teach us. We need to hear your voice. Speak to us in such a way that we would have a sense of urgency to respond and to live in a manner worthy of our calling. May your spirit do that work in our hearts this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if, if any of you know me, I'm not much of a game-playing person. I'm talking like board games, card games, that kind of thing. But there is one game that we enjoy playing as a family from, from time to time. And I don't know if you've ever played this game, but the title of it is Boggle. Have you heard of Boggle before? It's kind of like a word search game, that kind of thing. 
And basically how it works is you have this little, little square board with little slots for these cubes that have letters on them. And you shake it up, you put it down, you take the top off, and you turn over a little hourglass. And you have so much time to find words. You know, they can be diagonal or horizontal or whatever. Uh, and you have time to write down these words before the time runs out. And the person with the most words or the words with the most points wins. Well, usually when we play that game, and I don't know if this is official boggle rules or not. I'm, I'm not an expert in that. But uh, you, there comes a point in the time in the game where you, people start to slow down. They start to quit finding new words. And I'll usually say something like, is it, can I shift the board? And everybody's fine with that. And I'll just turn it maybe a half turn. And it's amazing how you're looking at the same board, the same thing. You do this little slight turn, and all of a sudden, these words jump out at you. You see it from a different perspective. Simply turning the board opens up new things that you haven't seen before, and it gives you a new perspective. And that's really how perspective works. Two people can look at the same thing, the same situation, the same set of circumstances, and interpret it differently or see different things jump out at them. Isn't that one of the hardest things about the Christian life? To have a biblical perspective, a right perspective on our circumstances. Rather than seeing things through a negative lens that concludes, where is God in this? God's not doing anything. We're tempted to think that way. Well, in our passage this morning, Paul gives us a proper perspective on, on a number of issues as he personally interacts with his audience in the closing of his letter. Now, just remind us of the purpose of this letter. We started this series many, many months ago, and it might be good to just refresh our memories of what this, the purpose of this letter was. The occasion of Romans and the purpose is this. Paul is basically, he's in Corinth right now when he's writing this, and he's planning to go to Jerusalem and ultimately to go to Spain, as we'll see in our passage. And on his way to Spain, he hopes to visit the church in Rome and receive some sort of assistance in his missionary work, as well as mutual encouragement of one another. So we could look at the purpose of Romans as Paul wanting to better introduce himself to the church at Rome, as well as his theology in preparation for his visit. You see, like the rest of Paul's letters, Romans is very occasional and pastoral. You know, it's loaded with, with deep theology, but he's not writing a, a theological textbook abstracted from any sort of personal involvement or pastoral involvement. It's very occasional, and he's writing for a particular purpose. And we see some of the personal elements of this letter come out in our chapter. And though this chapter deals with specifics related to his immediate circumstances and purposes for the church in Rome, we'll also consider what we can learn about perspective on a number of issues for us at St. Andrews. The first thing that we can learn is perspective on ministry. We see this in verses 14 through 21. Paul begins by expressing overall satisfaction about the conduct and understanding of the believers in Rome. 
And he's written this lengthy letter as a bold reminder to them. But notice in verse 16 what he says about his ministry. He calls it the priestly service of the gospel. He considers his ministry to be a priestly one. What does that mean? What does that mean for us? Paul ministers the gospel of Christ, which is made effective through the Holy Spirit, so that obedient Gentiles become, in a sense, an offering back to God, sanctified by the Spirit. And perhaps in the backdrop of this passage, we have the Old Testament Uh, in play here in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 20. Listen to what it says. Isaiah speaks of a time when they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites brought their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. See, he's, he's connecting his ministry and its significance, much like the ministry of the priests in the Old Testament times. In other places in the New Testament, uh, we find the same language, this priestly offering type language as depicting our ministry in the last days. Now, when I say last days, what I mean by that theologically is the time between the comings of Christ. That's how the New Testament speaks of the last days. And what does that ministry look like? Well, listen. Uh, to earlier in Romans, chapter 12. He urges his brothers at Rome to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There's a sense in which we're offering all of who we are unto God in following after Christ. Hebrews 13, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And then lastly, in 1 Peter 2, believers are likened to living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, with what's all that saying? It says that our ministry, not just Paul, but all believers in Christ, have a priestly ministry. We're offering up sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of good works, as a response of love to God on the basis of Christ's once and for all atoning sacrifice. Our sacrifices don't atone, only Christ's once and for all. But our sacrifices and service that we offer up to God, even our whole bodies, um, are a response of gratitude and love for Christ's sacrifice. So in many ways, our you've heard uh, believers talked about as having the priesthood uh, of believers. This is what it's talking about. This type of ministry. So how does that speak to our perspective on ministry? Well, if you're like me, you're tempted to think of ministry merely in horizontal terms. When you get down in the trenches of ministry and service in the church, it's tempting to think, this is all there is. 
and it devolves into merely human-level considerations. You know, dealing with difficult people, difficult situations, putting out this fire. What are we going to do about this? And here's one of the flaws. Only expecting results that are proportionate to what we bring to the table. Either we who minister or those we're ministering to. And if you, if you just look at it horizontally, there's not much hope, to be honest. We're flawed, they're flawed, this is a big mess. That's if you're thinking purely on a horizontal level. But this text reminds us that we are participating in a priestly ministry of the gospel, one that interacts horizontally unto God, that we have a living God. We are ambassadors for God, the scriptures tell us. Sometimes we tend to think, oh, the the priests in the Old Testament, they had some serious work to do, and they were involved in something very significant. Our ministry is a priestly ministry. In fact, in one sense, it's even more significant in the sense that Christ, the Christ that we proclaim, is the fulfillment of all those things in the Old Testament. The fulfillment of all the priestly activity as he is our ultimate high priest. Ministry is more than the human level, and we need to be reminded of that. The scriptures tell us that the power that's at work in and through us as we minister is the immeasurable power of the resurrected Christ. That's who's at work in us. We can have hope that something good can come out of this. Paul goes on to say that he's proud of his work for God in verse 17. And he qualifies that, rightly so. He says, I'm proud of my work for God in Christ Jesus for what Christ has accomplished through him. This is kind of like what he says elsewhere when he talks about boasting in Christ alone. Paul is proud of what Christ is accomplishing through him. And this, the goal of his ministry in terms of the Gentiles is that they would become obedient to God. And that's a good reminder for us as we minister as well here at St. Andrews. Our, one of our goals should be that people are becoming obedient to Christ. We're not just trying to gather people for events. We're not just trying to get numbers of people to show up and get excited about something. Ultimately, we want to see people becoming more obedient to Christ, to come to faith in Christ and grow. Colossians 1, Paul uh, expresses the same idea. He says, Him we proclaim, that's Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Another question I want you to consider when we think about ministry and service here at St. Andrews. Have you ever wondered if your efforts to serve are in vain? Do you ever wonder, does it really make a difference? Is this really worth my time? I want, I want to remind you what the scriptures say about doing something in vain. That theme 
is found in many places in Scripture. But something is done in vain when it's done without faith, without Christ in view. And it's anything that is man-centered or trusting in man's strength or wisdom. That's in vain. But when it comes to our labor in Christ, the scriptures are very clear. Let me read a few passages from 1 Corinthians 15. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, you may be familiar with this verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, what it's saying here is our labor in Christ is not in vain because God never does anything in vain. God is at work, and he accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish. So we can take courage when you're tempted to think, What's the use? Why am I spending all this time seemingly spinning my wheels in ministry or service in the church? Remember that. Paul's ministry also was done in word and deed, he says. And this again, this is a good reminder for us. True gospel ministry involves both. And we know this. But how often... Do we honor him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him? We talk a good game. We know all the right things to say, but our lives are disproportionate to what we say we believe. He goes on to talk about the signs and wonders and the power at work in him. And uh, there's a lot in there that was unique to his apostolic ministry and the stage of redemption that God had him in in terms of these signs and wonders. That's sort of a a phrase that's used to refer to miracles in the Word of God, especially the New Testament. I want to remind us that what we do is no less significant. Sometimes we think, well, yeah, Paul had this successful, obviously powerful ministry. God was at work in and through him. But think about for us, as we proclaim the gospel of Christ... God is performing the miracle of conversion in the hearers. That conversion work of God is no less than a spiritual resurrection from the dead. Perhaps one of the greatest, one of the greatest miracles that we could that we could observe. Spiritual resurrection from the dead. Jesus said in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now in that context, he also talks about the future physical resurrection, the bodily resurrection. But this verse is talking about a spiritual inward resurrection from the dead. That's how significant The ministry of the gospel of Christ is here at St. Andrews. And then he closes this section, 20 and 21, verses 20 and 21, with uh, 
sort of his expression of his big picture view of ministry. It's a big picture thrust to reach the lost with the gospel. And he, and he quotes from Isaiah 52, 15, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul cites this text in Isaiah 52, and if you look at that context, it's talking about the, the work of the suffering servant of God, the Messiah. This is the, the fruit of his work, that people who've never been told will see and they will understand. And Paul saw this as happening even in his day, the fulfillment of these things, and it, it continues until the return of Christ, doesn't it? Which includes us. Let me ask you this question. Do our plans and prayers concern things beyond ourselves? Are they consistent with God's global purposes for the gospel in the world and drawing many to faith? Now I can say on one level, St. Andrews has been blessed to have a strong emphasis on global missions. And I pray that that would continue and even grow but what about us as individuals and members of St. Andrews? Is this how we pray? Are we concerned with global things that God is doing or are we only concerned with ourself and our needs? We need to be challenged to think, as Paul does here, about ministry on the broad scale. Well, next, Paul shifts from talking about his past ministry to his future travel plans. And now this is the section I did not read earlier uh, in light of his desire to reach the unreached. I'll be very brief with this section, but I do want to make a few points. And this deals with having a right perspective about future plans. Our plans. As we see example of Paul expressing his plans and desires. He says that the reason he's been hindered in coming to Rome was his pioneering gospel work, which in many ways was church planting, as we think about it even today. From Illyricum all the way to Jerusalem, uh, that's about 1,700 miles or so, this arc of ministry that he was involved in, planting churches. And he hopes to visit Rome on his way to Spain to be helped on his journey and enjoy their fellowship. However, before he does that, as I said earlier, he wants to go to Jerusalem to deliver aid to the poor saints there. These are, this is a financial aid gift that was collected from Gentile believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Well, what do we know of these plans? Okay, here's Paul expressing, here's what he wants to do and how the Roman church is involved in that. What do we know of these plans? Well, from other places in Scripture, as far as we know, Paul never made it to Spain. And he did come to Rome, but in an unexpected way. He came as a prisoner. What does this teach us about implicitly about a perspective on our plans, our future plans in particular? 
Well, we know from Paul's example that his plans were not driven merely by his own desires or comfort. But from a consideration of God's calling in his life and ministry to others. Again, this other-centeredness in even his own plans. Now, it's important to note that travel at that time was a lot more difficult. We think travel's a hassle today. To travel 1,700 miles and then to turn around and uh, leave from Jerusalem and possibly get to Spain another 3,000 miles, perhaps, uh, that's a lot of travel for that time and that place. A lot of hazardous travel. It was not easy. He wasn't merely thinking of his own comfort. He was thinking about God's call on his life and how he could be used to minister to others. He wanted to minister and enjoy fellowship with brothers in Christ. Now let me ask this question by way of application for us. What criteria do you use to make future plans? And perhaps an even more convicting question, would they look any different from someone who does not know Christ? About how they plan their future, what they plan to do. See, there's all kinds of errors that the Scripture speaks of when it comes to planning our future. You have passages like James 4, which deals with the sin of presumption. Who are you? To say, I'm going to go and do this and that business in that city. You don't know what your life's going to bring. You don't know what's around the corner. But instead, you should say, by God, if it be God's will, I'll do this or that. And, and James means something much more deep than just saying the words. You know, we, that kind of becomes part of our verbiage as a Christian uh, culture. We can say, uh, Lord willing, you know, this or that or, or whatever. This is deep. This is saying, I'm trusting in God for my future and his direction. He calls the shots, and I will do what he wants me to do. But the scriptures also speak of not becoming cynical about our future or shrinking back in faith or unbelief uh, in terms of our future. We are to hope in what God is doing. We are to be hopeful that God is at work in and around us. And that he has stuff for us to do that he will accomplish through his church. So consider those questions and how you might answer those. Well, how does Paul want, us, want the Romans and us to respond to his travel plans that he just laid out? And that brings us to our last point, a perspective on prayer. In verses 30 through 33. First of all, he urges them to strive with him in their prayers. This is a call to a sense of urgency and persistence in prayer. Like we really believe this stuff. Like this stuff is really true. One of my favorite uh, theologians, 
in the history of the church is John Owen, Puritan, who had a great influence on uh, the Westminster Assembly and the, the theology expressed that, we, that are part of our doctrinal standards here in the PCA. He had some strong statements to make about the need for prayer. Now, I'm going to come back to the fact that Paul is emphasizing corporate prayer here in this text. But I want to take a little aside for a moment, consider prayer as individuals, as believers in Christ. And Owen says in a couple of places in different ways, he says, What a man is in secret, in private duties like prayer and meditation, that he is in the eyes of God and no more. Now, what he's saying is not, that's, that's the basis of his standing before God. He's not saying that. That's justification by faith. That's God's grace. But if you are going to show the true fruits of your standing and justification in Christ, you should be engaging in these private duties of prayer and meditation. That's what a believer does. As another writer put it, Prayer is like breathing to the regenerate soul. That's how part of our lives it should be. Elsewhere, he challenges ministers. Now, he's speaking especially those in formal vocational ministry, but we could broaden that to include all of us. As we've talked about, we have a, a priesthood uh, ministry that we're all involved with on some level. He says, a minister may fill his pews, his communion roll, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. The same is true with us. Why is it that prayer seems so simple, yet relatively few do the work? You know, I think prayer is something that really cuts to the marrow of our faith. What I mean by that is, perhaps it's easier to pray when somebody says, stands up here and says, let us pray. Or you pray before a meal, that's expected. But what about when you're not forced to? When nobody's stimulating you to pray from without? When you're alone with God, or when you're alone by yourself, do you have a a desire to seek the Lord's face? And to pray for things beyond yourself, beyond your own immediate comforts? That's a real test of faith. The kind of vibrant faith that we are called to. You know, if we're prayerless, in these alone times, what does that say about our faith? Now, getting back to Paul's emphasis on corporate prayer, he's calling the church as a whole to pray for his ministry and his travel plans. If we don't pray with others, or we see corporate prayer here at St. Andrew's as, oh, that's an optional thing for the, the really committed praying people, what does that say about our faith? Where are our hearts? In another place, John Owen says, and he's borrowing the language from Psalm 10, but he says, He that prayeth not says in his heart, There is no God. 
See, the reality of our situation this day, this morning, is the reality that we see described in Ephesians 6. It's a spiritual battle. It's an ongoing battle with a sense of urgency. We are called to pray, and prayer is emphasized greatly in that passage, not only as individuals, but as a church. So I would encourage you, if if you're not already involved in corporate prayer here at St. Andrews, we have times. We have times that we do that. Join us. Look for those times in your worship guide. Paul asked for two things in particular, two requests in verses 31 and 32. First of all, he asked for him to be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. And he also asked for his service to Jerusalem be acceptable to the saints there. And his service there is probably that financial aid package that he's bringing. And you may ask, well, why, why would somebody not accept that, right? Everybody accepts uh, a money gift. Uh, well, perhaps the Jewish believers there would be suspicious of Paul as a minister to the Gentiles. Perhaps they would be hesitant to be linked with his ministry in that way. So perhaps that lies behind his request. Now, he makes these requests, and I want us to think for a moment about our perspective on prayer in terms of unanswered prayer, or prayer being answered in a way that we don't expect, because that is exactly what happens to Paul. We, we read about these, his travels and his experiences in Acts chapter 21 through 28, and we, we know from those chapters that both of these requests were answered, okay? They were answered by God, but in completely unexpected ways. I want you to think about what this tells us about the perspective we need to have on prayer and ministry. Well, he, he ended up delivering his aid to the church in Jerusalem. We know this from Acts 24. But he had to be taken immediately into custody by the Romans because unbelieving Jews were trying to kill him. Now, think about his request. Wasn't his request uh, to protect him from these unbelieving Jews who might do him harm? They're seeking to do him harm. His life's threatened. Perhaps it seemed like an unanswered prayer at that time. But we know as things unfold that it was God's providential answer and providential way of delivering Paul and bringing him ultimately to Rome. Unexpected, but it happened. And God was in it. Think about what that might mean for us in terms of prayer. How often are you quickly are quick to uh, conclude that God did not hear my prayer. God's not answering my prayer because it was not how you envisioned the answer to be. How often do we experience a delay of some kind in an answer to prayer and conclude, well, obviously God didn't hear it, he's not doing anything, Uh, I'm on my own. And we make those conclusions. You see, we need to be humbled because our perspective is extremely short-sighted oftentimes. 
very limited. Resist the temptation to attribute wrongdoing to God or to presume to be his counselor, as many texts warn us against. Think about this truth about your God. He cannot be corrected. Think how much encouragement and confidence that can bring you if you, if you meditated on that truth. God cannot be corrected. He does things right, and he knows the right way. He really does know the best way to do things and how to answer your prayers. And if you think about it, and this goes back to our limited perspective, God is doing multiple, multiple things at, at any given time through uh, different events involving many different people, doing different things. And if you really start to add up the factors involved, it will blow your mind. What is God doing? Well, he's doing a lot of stuff. Stuff that you can't even trace. So be humbled, but be encouraged at the same time. His wisdom and understanding is unsearchable. Earlier, Paul had erupted in praise in chapter 11 when he said, Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You know, the mystery of God's working is not a negative thing for his children. Because what we don't know about what God's doing in and around us is more glorious than you can imagine. Well, Paul was used in unexpected ways through these unexpected answers. He was put in prison basically for two years. And then he slowly was sent to Rome, and he encountered all kinds of things. If you remember this journey, he was on a ship that wrecked. He, he got bit by a viper. Uh, there was all kinds of things going on that one could easily conclude, God's not answering my prayer. I try to minister, you know, try to minister for the glory of God, and this is what I get. Nothing but hardship. What's the use? Well, if you look at that narrative in Acts 21 and following, you see time and time again, he's given opportunities to testify, to give his personal testimony, and to proclaim the gospel of Christ time and time again to different audiences, all the way to Rome. See, there's two ways you can look at that situation in terms of perspective. One from God's perspective and one from a man-centered way. And they come out very different. Your unexpected answer may be God's way of opening up more doors for ministry than you could have even envisioned in your original request. Don't be discouraged. Seek the Lord's face in those moments when you're tempted to doubt. So what perspective, or from what perspective are you viewing the board? You know, to use... The image from the beginning. The board of ministry. The board of future plans. Prayer. Is it the perspective we find in the Word of God? 
in chapter 15 of Romans. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for these reminders from your word. We're so easily deceived in coming to wrong conclusions about you and about ministry, about prayer. Lord, help us to see things from your perspective, that we might honor you, that we would appreciate and give thanks to you for the ways that you're at work in and through us. Lord, I pray that you would use this passage to encourage us, to spur us on to minister in faith, knowing that you're at work, that you're doing great things, wondrous things in our midst. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.